So it's really been a little bit hard for me to segue into what I'm going to talk about now, but I'm going to try my best anyway. Have you ever met someone who, besides Phil, who seems to have lost their grip on reality? <laughs> you know, when, when I was a youth pastor, um, we moved into this little house. I think it was built in the 50s or something like that. And it still had the decorations from the 70s in it, and it, and it was kind of in a quiet neighborhood, and um, so we got to know some of our neighbors, but the lady right across the street, whose house was right across the street, she was nuts. <laughs> I mean, she was talking to herself all the time, and uh, some of the other neighbors said that she was crazy and just kind of keep an eye out and all the rest of that, and so, you know, I would always, when I'd go out to my car to go to the office, I would wave at her and say hello, and she would yell some profanity back at me and shake her fist and all the rest of this stuff, and I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to love her with kindness, that's what I'm going to do, I'm just going to keep being kind to her, and so one summer day, um, I was backing out, and I had the sunroof on my car open, and I backed out of the driveway, and there she was out out in her lawn with her garden hose, watering the lawn. And so I just looked at her, and I well yelled at her, Hello! And she turned around and, and looked at me, and she started yelling, Murderer! Murderer! And then she turned her garden hose into my sunroof of my car. And I'm like, you know, all the rest of the neighbors are going like, Oh. So anyway, I drove off that evening when I got home. Her son came and kind of tried to explain, well, he did explain to me what happened. If she had this cat that she would let outside and it would roam the neighborhood, but that morning when she went out the front door early, she found the cat dead on the front step of her house. And she assumed, because I was bald, that I had killed her cat. That's what, her, that's what her son said. She, he said, she thinks because you're bald, you're a murderer and you killed her cat. But the truth was, it was her son who had accidentally left some antifreeze sitting around the corner of her house, uncovered, and the cat got into it, and he was the murderer and not me. But he couldn't convince his mother of that, so he told me to keep my windows up and my sunroof closed during the summer because she might water me down again. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, that happens to a lot of people. Whether it's uh, they're going senile, they, you know, older people kind of lose their grip on reality and what's really true. And it's really sad when that happens to older folks. And, and it's... It, it's a hard path to travel. And for anybody who's had to go down that path with their parents or their grandparents, I mean, like Lorinda's grandfather, I just knew him for a short time. And um, he always called me Simon because he thought that was my first name. And then one of the, his daughters asked him uh, what he thought about Lorinda's boyfriend, Ken. And he was like a little bit confused because... Well, Simon is her boyfriend, and I don't know this Ken fellow, but I really like the Simon guy. And so he was a little bit confused. And so there are just 
things that take place in our minds and we lose a grip on reality. And, and it's really difficult to walk down the path with people like that. But you know, there, there's another place where people seem to lose their grip on reality. And it, it, it to me, it's almost a sadder situation. It, it, to me, it's, it's something that is preventable, something that they could have handled, something that could have been dealt with. And that's when people lose their grip on the truth. Because when you lose your grip on the truth of what really is true, what God says is really true, when you choose not to believe what God says is true, it's dangerous. It's both, it's both a danger to your spirit, your soul, and physically, because you, a lot of times people end up going down the path that is, is destructive, as the Bible says. It's a path of destruction because they've stepped away from really believing and, and, and walking in the truth of God. And the crazy part is whether it's people who have lost a grip on reality or people who have lost a grip on truth, there are always those who are going to walk with them and continue to be there for them. And the reason that they do it is because out of this deep sense of love that God has put in their hearts. In some cases, it's for better and for worse in sickness and in health that they are not going to abandon that person. They are not going to give up on the covenant that they made before God with that person and so they walk with them down that path. Other times, it's just walking with them spiritually. There's... They're on their knees in prayer, praying for the person who has stepped off of what God's known truth is and started to believe something else. And that's always, always a bit of a, a difficult thing to go for. And, and sometimes people just give up altogether and don't believe in anything. And the problem with that is, is that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And that's where we find Paul as, he, as we enter into the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. The, the church not only had a problem with unity, and remember, they had a conduct that was not becoming of Christ followers. They, they were messing up on their conduct in a lot of areas. There was sexual immorality going on in the church. They were making a mockery around the Lord's table and getting drunk and doing things and, and being self-serving in all of that. And, and then they were using their gifts in a way that was not glorifying to God or edifying to the church. And so this church was really a mess. I mean, they have really lost their grip on the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And that's what Paul's now going to address. He's going to come back and he's going to look at them and he's going to say to them, you, are, you have lost your centeredness on Jesus. You are no longer centered on the gospel of Christ. You have started to put your, your, your faith, your hope, your trust into something else. Part of the problem that, that he was dealing with is that they had come to know Christ through his preaching. This was an established church. They were growing both uh, spiritually and numerically, but something happened along the way and the church kind of lost its bearings. They were wandering off in the wrong direction and, and most likely it was because somebody came in 
and started to teach something other than Jesus. They probably did it this way. You need you, you can have Jesus, but you need more than Jesus. There's more that you don't have. You're missing something. You're, you're not going to find what you really need only in Jesus. You need to have this and this added on to Jesus in order for you to find fulfillment in this religious experience that you have. And that's what they were turning it into was a religious experience. And if you've read anything about Jesus, you know he did not advocate religions. He advocated a relationship with his father. That's where he went to. He, that, he got after the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, all the religious leaders who were the upper echelon of his day. Jesus got after them because they were just a bunch of religious people following a bunch of religious rituals and had no relationship with Jesus. And then they were trying to bear that down on the people with whom God had entrusted into their spiritual care. And Jesus is going like, you're nothing but a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You guys, you guys look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're stinking. There's death within you. And so Paul now is coming to the church because he's recognized, he's heard the stories. They've probably even written something to them in the letter that they sent to him asking questions. And he's picking up on these things and he's saying, you have lost your centeredness. You are no longer centered on Jesus. So he's going to bring them back. And so that's where we're going to pick it up with verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He's addressing this issue issue where the church has lost touch with the truth of their salvation. He reminds them of the gospel that he presented. They responded to it, And it was reality for a while. And it was also where you presently are standing. You see, that's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Is is that when we come into this, this relationship with Jesus, we can probably all look back and have some kind of an idea. It doesn't necessarily have to be the exact date. There are some people that know the exact date. I know the exact date. Because when I became a Christ follower... My mom and dad bought a Bible for me, and they wrote in there my spiritual birthday. I don't ever use that Bible for anything because it's in the King James, and I don't understand English well enough to understand Old English. But I keep that Bible because it has my spiritual birthday in it. I can, I can go back. I know what that day was in 1970. Boom. I can look at it right there, and I know. I'm assured of that. But the other thing I know about coming to Christ is that every day that I walk with Jesus, I'm walking in my salvation that he provided for me. So it was past, but it's also I'm living in it right now in the present, and I know that it has some reward for me in the future. And that's what Paul is trying to get here. I'm reminding you, brothers, of the gospel. 
which you received, past, which you stand in, present, and which you are being saved, future. So that's the beautiful thing about this, this gospel that Paul brought to the church is he wants them to remind them that it's not just what happened back there on that day. It's what you're living in right now and that's why you live the way that you do because of the grace that you've received from through Jesus from the Father. And we live in that moment. It, it's, a, it's a significant part in our, in our life to know that we have this, this salvation that comes from Jesus. It's not something that we have to re-tank on. You don't pray one prayer for your entire life. Well, I, okay, I should rephrase that. My oldest son, and this was back when he was in college, decided that he would pray a prayer for the food that would cover all the times that he forgot to pray a prayer for the food. <laughs> so I don't know if that really works or not. I'm pretty sure God smiled and said, that's a, that a, that a boy, way to be thinking, but that doesn't mean you can just forget about praying. You need to continue to pray and ask and thank God for things. But the realistic thing is, is that we don't just pray like, for, for instance, Lorinda and I. We didn't pray one prayer for little P and say that's good enough and press on and just pray one little prayer for whatever and we just pray one prayer. We continue to keep coming back and praying and praying and praying and praying. That's because the admonition in Scripture is to pray without ceasing. So that's a thing that we continue to do. But when you come to faith in Christ, it's a one and done. You don't have to go back to the cross and confess your sins every, every time you sin. You don't have to go back and go like, I think I've sinned again. Therefore, if I don't confess this sin, I'm going to go to hell. That's not called the, the security that we get from what Jesus did on the cross. What Jesus did on the cross it secures us in our relationship from the past to the present and on into the future. And that's where we rest. But we can't get off track. Now, you'll notice that Paul says in, in those first two verses, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. Now, it, it sounds like it's conditional, but it's not. It's not conditional on salvation, but on their, on their understanding of the gospel. You see, here's, here's what I remember. I told you that there are some false teachers that snuck into the camp. And they were teaching things that weren't true about Jesus. And so they, what they were doing is they were taking what Paul had presented, the reality of the gospel of Christ and, and the truth that we live in this every moment. But what they're saying now is you've got these other people that are going like, Paul was partially right but mostly wrong. And so what you have to do is you now have to start adding stuff to what Paul taught you. That's, that's not... Not holding fast to what you were preached to. If anybody ever comes and tells you that Jesus isn't enough for your life, they're telling you a lie. That's not the truth. Because Jesus, at the end of the day, Jesus is all you need for anything. He will get you through the worst circumstances of your life. He will help you to pro project yourself to the place where God is going to use you in the future as you set yourself up for God to use you. He is always there. He's always working. He always wants to be interacting with you in your life on every level. But there's somebody who was telling the Corinthian church 
or a number of somebodies who were coming in and saying, no, 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 you've got to have more. You've got to have more. You've got to have more. You have to do more. You have to earn. You have to, to make yourself presentable. All these different things that can come in and cloud out the picture of us having Jesus at the central part of our life. It, it, Paul taught them, and when he preached to them, he told them that, it was, that they had salvation alone in Jesus. Nothing else. Nobody else went to the cross for them. The gospel is intended to be central, the central power around which one's life revolves. That's Jesus. And as Christ followers, we have been given something to which we can hold fast. And we will see us through all of life's uncertainties. If we try to find some other way to find stability, we will find ourselves on a constant search for that thing to bring stability into our life because there is nothing else that will bring stability to your life except Jesus. Your spouse will not bring stability to your life. If you marry because you think that that person is going to make you complete, you've married for the wrong reason. If you get a job because you think that the money that you're going to earn from this job and the way you can climb climb the corporate ladder is going to bring stability to your life, well, just look at your life since 2002. What has happened? The economy has tanked. Wyoming is in a bit of a tailspin because we have put all of our eggs into to natural resources. So you can't, you can't trust money to bring stability. You can't trust your spouse to bring stability. You definitely cannot trust your kids to bring stability. They'll take your legs right out from underneath you when you're not looking. And then they'll laugh about it. The only thing that brings stability in anybody's life is the reality and the truth that Jesus died on the cross for them. And that is what brings us stability. Let's move on because Paul kind of gives them the idea. He reminds them. The first two verses are a reminder of what you were preached and and what you hold fast to. The second two verses are, are, are just, they're like, wow, okay? It says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. I'm stopping right there real quick. Because if you go back to chapter 11 and when Paul's dealing with the misbehavior, the bad conduct around the Lord's table, that's exactly what he says there. I, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. That on the night that he was betrayed, and it goes on. And, and there's, so here's the second time that he says this. And we need to take notice of this because this is a really important thing for us in our lives. You want to pass something on. You want to share somebody or share something with somebody who is, is of great value in your life and you want to help them spiritually. You have got to be spending your time in the word. That's where the truth is. And you can't pass the truth on to somebody else unless you're receiving the truth from what the word of God says and how the Holy Spirit brings it to you to bear on to somebody else's life. You can't do it. You can't pass on something you've never received. 
So Paul's really telling the church, he's going like, listen guys, you're really smart, but you're really dumb too. You're smart in the world's eyes because you guys are, are highly successful and they were a highly successful church. And you have done a lot of things and you've got these amazing gifts that are going on and you're using them. And then I think that you're abusing a lot of these gifts as well. But the problem is, is that you're not centering your life on Christ and letting the word of God build you up spiritually so that you have something to, to pass on to somebody else. When I was, last time I was out in, in California, I noticed a little bit of um, friction between my daughter and her husband. And so I just prayed and asked God to give me an opportunity to talk to them. Because I didn't want to come in and go like, look, I'm your dad, so you can sit down, shut up, and listen to me. It doesn't work so well with 30-year-olds. They just don't. They're going like, yeah, well, you're my dad and you don't know Jack. So uh, Cody and I ended up have, driving from, we met Leela and Cody in Reno. They had a doctor appointment. We, with them, we went with them to see Priscilla's cardiologist. And then the girls, I don't know how this worked out the way. I don't know why we couldn't do this. They took Priscilla and went back to Susanville, an hour and 15-minute drive. They sent Cody and I, and this is the day before Thanksgiving, to a, a, a grocery store called Winco. Anybody here know Winco? Oh, yeah, there you go, Winco. You, you just take the Super Walmart and turn it all into grocery, all of it, the whole thing. And then it's really cheap food. So you can imagine when you walk into Winco the day before Thanksgiving that all the rest the other procrastinators, all 45,000 of them, are in there grabbing the turkeys, the bread, and all the rest of that stuff. And that's where the girls sent us to go to the store while they drove home. Their kindness was overwhelming. We could have taken Priscilla and gone home. But we, being good husbands who know when to say yes, dear, we did say yes, dear, and we went to Winco. But it was our trip from Winco home. Because then we entered into this conversation. And it's not a conversation about football, basketball, golf. It was a conversation about heart issues. And how do you get along in a relationship where you've got this major stressor not that Priscilla is the stressor, but what's going on with little P is the stressor in your relationship. We had a marvelous conversation. I was able to carry that conversation on the next day. I sat with both Leela and Cody, and I shared with them biblical truth and principles about their marriage and why it was so important. I actually took my dad hat off and put my pastor hat on and sat there and shared with them. And you know what? Here's the greatest part about it. They were attentive. They were taking notes and they were asking questions because they knew they were not centered. And it made a huge difference. We've seen a lot of growth in our two kids now. 
And I'm not saying it's because of me. It's because of God's word. I just happen to be the messenger. God's word is powerful and effective, sharper than a two-edged sword, separating the soul from the spirit. And when his word goes out, it never comes back void. It always brings a harvest of righteous living. So I say to you, as Paul did, I deliver you, deliver to you what I received. You need to receive so you can deliver. And I want to say this particularly to anybody here who has children or they have parents. That's all y'all, as they'd say in the South. There are people who need to receive something from you. It could be your family. It could be your children. It could be your spouse. It could be your parents. It could be your siblings. It could be your very best, best of friend. They need to hear a truth from God's word in their life. But if you're not in God's word, you will never be able to deliver what they need. So pick up Paul's admonition to the church. Receive, then deliver. He goes on to say after that, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. Here's the thing that Paul's doing now, because what they've done is, remember, they've lost their centeredness on Jesus, and they've, they've stepped off center, and they're trying to bring something else that's going to center their life, and it's not going to work. And so he's going back, and he's giving them two, two perspectives here. He's giving them the historical evidence, and he's giving them the scriptural evidence of who Jesus is and why Jesus is the only one on which you can center your life. It's really amazing because Christ died for our sins is in accordance with Scripture. So here's what he's implying on this. All right. I'm going to cross all the T's and dot all the I's this morning because I, I don't want to assume anything. Okay, so I'm going to do all of that. So when it says that Christ died... The implication is, is that he was alive. We would all agree with that. Yes, Christ came, and, and in, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, it says that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and he came full of grace and truth. Now, that's the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus always existed as the Son of God before he was born to the Virgin Mary. He's always existed. He is fully God. But God said, in order for my plan to be fulfilled, you have to go. You have to be in the womb of that little girl right there. And she's going to give birth to you. And you're going to grow up. And you're going to live in this world as a man. And you will not sin. And you will live a perfect life. Because in order for us to fulfill the law, you have to have a perfect sacrifice. You know, when they would bring the lambs to the, in the Old Testament, when they bring those little lambs or whatever they were bringing as a sacrifice for their sins, it had to be perfect. There had to be no blemish on it. It couldn't have a lame leg. It couldn't have, be blind in one eye. It couldn't have one ear that drooped. It couldn't be drooling on itself. It couldn't, uh, it had to be a white, 
pure, spotless lamb. And that meant no black little marks on it. It had to be 100% pure white, this little lamb, that they brought for the covering of their sin. It had to be perfect. But the problem was, it was still an animal, and that blood would only mask the sin. It would never remove the sin. And so as Jesus lived his life, and he came to the fulfillment of Scripture... He died as a perfect human being. He never sinned. He never thought an evil thought. He never did anything that would, would disqualify him from being perfect in any way. And that's what Paul was getting at. Because he's talking to them uh, that, they would, uh, that Christ had died for their sins in accordance with Scripture. And what they would have thought about is the Scripture that I believe Paul brought to their mind when he went and preached it the first time. And Phil mentioned that in our prayer. And that's from Isaiah 53, 4 through 8. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Sheep are stupid and they'll go anywhere. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that was before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. That was the prediction made by the prophet Isaiah 400 years, 800 years before Jesus ever walked on this earth as a human being. And Jesus fulfilled That prophecy perfectly. Because all your sins and all your transgressions, all your iniquities, along with all of mine, along with the sins, transgressions, and iniquities of every person that has ever walked on this planet or who will ever walk on this planet was put onto the shoulders of the perfect Son of God and He bore them on the cross and He carried them to hell and put them to death right there. That passage would have been so familiar to them. That, that, that to, the, to the people in the first century church, it's like John 3.16 to us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. They're the one and the same. John just shortened it up a little bit and, and kind of brought it down and boiled it down right down to the bare facts. And that's what we're talking about. And so what he's, he's talking, what, what Paul says is that Jesus came and he took our sins to the cross according to Scripture. He was crucified for us. He died. The second thing it says is that he was buried. And, and all you have to do is just continue on in, 
in that 53rd chapter of Isaiah, and you see exactly what it means. It says there in Isaiah verse 9, uh, 53, 9, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, Jesus was buried in a grave that was not his own. I don't want to be too morbid here, just a little bit. How many people have already bought a uh, plot at the cemetery where you're going to be buried? Anybody? There's a few of you. Yeah. And a lot of times that's what they did in the Old Testament is, is they had this family section down at the cemetery, which was a really bad place because that's where death was. And for a Jew to be connected to death meant that they were unclean and they couldn't go worship down at the temple until they got went through the purification ceremony. It's not like us. We think like, ooh, spooky at the cemetery. Now it's not really spooky. And we're, you know, it's just where death is. So they would buy an area where they would put in these tombs and it would be the family tomb area. Families. Because if you were Jewish, what you would do is when you died, you'd be put into this tomb. And then a year later, after the maggots have done all their work on your bones and there's no flesh left, they go back in and they take the bones of their loved one and they wrap them up in this little cloth thing and they stick them in a box. And then they have a little shelf thing, not in their house, but out in the cemetery that's the family row. And they shove the box in there and they put on their dad. I don't know which dad, you know, fifth generation dad, something like that. And so then when the next person died, they went back to the same tomb and and repeated the whole thing over again. So you only had to have one tomb because a year later, unless you had multiple deaths, then you would stack them up in there like, you know, bricks or something, I guess. I don't, I don't, you know, that's maybe a little leeway on my part. we'll, We'll call it holy interpretation, imagination, something like that. But Jesus didn't buy a tomb. He didn't have a family tomb. But yet here in chapter 9, that's what it says, is that he was put into the, buried in a grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. So then you go and you look at Mark chapter 15, verses 43 through 46. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, the religious council, the rich people, the ones that ruled over everything, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that that he should have already died. And he summoned the centurion and asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse, corpse, got that? That means he's dead to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. That's exactly what Isaiah 9 just said. Only now we've got a little more detail. We know who the man was. This is a guy 
who from a distance wanted to believe in Jesus. He, he and, and, and um, Nicodemus were buddies. But they, they were a little bit fearful to really step out because they're part of the upper echelon, part of the guys that are leading the charge, you know, with the religious group of people. And for them to come out and say, we really believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Chosen One, the Anointed One, spoke about in Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the rest of the prophets, would have caused them great harm. And so they were kind of in their hearts believing but keeping a distance. But all of a sudden, as you noticed in this passage, Joseph got a little bit of courage and went and talked to Pilate and buried Jesus in the tomb. This is historical facts that you're getting here. This really happened. You can ask anybody. They'll say, yes, Jesus. You, you ask any historian, they'll go, Jesus was a real person. He really died on a cross with the Romans. And he was buried in a tomb. Now, if Paul would have stopped right there with his declaration about who Jesus is, that he died, that he was killed on the cross for our sins, and that he was buried, and that's all he ever talked about, then this story about Jesus would just be another sad story of someone who was um, falsely accused of committing a crime and then heinously killed on the most torturous uh, death machine that the Romans had, the cross of a crucifixion, which was relegated for the worst of the worst of criminals. It would just be a sad story. It'd just be Jesus was born, he died, they buried him. So sad, too bad. But what God had in mind was something that was totally different, totally going to blow the doors off of the norm for every other person that ever lived since Jesus. He's blowing the doors off of it. He's doing something extraordinary with this death. Now understand, Jesus is not the first person that had died and then come back to life. Let me just give you one quick example. You remember, um, what's his name? Lazarus. That's right. I got it right here in my notes somewhere. Lazarus. So Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, they are disciples of Jesus. They're not like the 12 who traveled with Jesus everywhere. They were like disciples who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And where they lived in Bethany, they, they had their home. And whenever Jesus came through that area and Jesus needed a rest, needed a break, needed to be fed, needed some new clothes and new sandals, he would go and stay with, with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they took care of his physical needs. They were his friends. They were close friends. And so all of a sudden, Jesus gets the word that his buddy, Lazarus, who he's done a lot of things with, whom he loves deeply, is gravely ill and about ready to die. And they're saying, come and heal him. And Jesus goes, hey, let's go over here and do this for four days or five days. And so Jesus doesn't show up until Lazarus has been dead and in the tomb for four days. Four days he's dead. And Jesus tells everybody, he says, come. And he actually says to, to Martha, this is for the glory of God that this should happen. And I told you that if you hung around with me long enough, you're going to see God's glory come out of all kinds of crazy things. And this is one of them. And so he said, move that stone away. And, and Martha's going like, the Lord, he's been in there dead for four days. 
the odor is going to make us all vomit. And Jesus says, move the stone. They moved the stone away. And all Jesus said was, Lazarus, come out here. And he came out and his hands and his legs, because he's just like Jesus in a shroud. And he's coming out and he's got this thing over his eyes and he can't walk very well. And he, you know, I mean, can you imagine? And he's standing there and he's shaking his head a little bit and everybody's like, and gets one eye open and he sees everybody and Jesus goes, come on, you guys, give him a little, little bit of help. Take those burial clothes off of him. Lazarus was dead. Jesus brought him back to life. But what you need to know is Lazarus was going to die again. He was going to face death all over again. I'm not sure if he knew what was coming or not the second time through. He might have gone like, I've been there, done that, I can do this again. But he died again. That's the difference between Jesus and Lazarus. Jesus died and when he was raised to life, he never faced death again because he conquered death. It's just this most amazing thing. It's just like we all have to deal with death and, and we try to make death one of those natural things that you're born You live and you die and it's just all natural part of the cycle of life. Well, that's bull butter. Have you ever been around somebody who's on their deathbed? I have. They really don't want to go. They're gasping for breath. Particularly those people who are not Christ followers. They are trying to hang on to life because dying is not natural the way God made us in the garden. He created us to live forever. But death came in and robbed that from us. And Jesus went to the cross. He died for our sins. He was buried. And he was resurrected. And death no longer has a sting in our lives. I've been dealing with death since the first I can remember. was when I was seven years old. And my mom's mother passed away. And I remember, I can still remember going to the funeral. And my first experience of seeing a dead person in a coffin and going back to my grandmother's house, and there were tears. There were mixed tears. There were the tears, I'm going to miss my mom from my, my mom and all of her brothers and all the rest of the relatives that were there. We're going to miss her. But there were tears of joy because the Bible tells us that when you were absent from the body, you were in the presence of the Lord. And the hope that we have is that one day when we are absent from the body and we're present with the Lord, we will see those who have gone on before us. That's the joy we have in all of it. We, we don't. It's not this thing that we get all shaken up about because we're going to die. We are going to die. It, it, the part that bothers me is what's the journey going to be? Is it going to be... Bam, done and in glory? Or is it going to be drawn out where God's going to do something else? And I don't know what it is. But I know that we were not created to die. That's why we fight it. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. He didn't just fight it. He, he fought it and won. He's the victor over death, over sin, over guilt, over shame. None of that has a grip on our lives anymore. And that's what Paul was reminding the church of. 
that because of Christ's resurrection, we do not have to be afraid. We do not fear death. We don't, you know, let's don't be morbid and say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run into death today. I'm not, you know, I don't think that's what we're going to do. Here's the bottom line. If Christ, if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. But if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. Right? I like the way Tim Keller talks about this section. He says, I like the doctrine of the resurrection because it's just as hard or harsh as life itself. The resurrection has a sharp, intolerable, hard edge. When it evaluates life, there is something very hard and sharp about what it's trying to say. If Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead, a real historical event, that should change everything. We have hope. We have joy. It changes the way we view ourselves, the way we view the world, how we view our neighbors, creation, God in history. But if Jesus were not bodily raised from the grave, then our faith is in vain and we have nothing to say. But the truth is, we have a lot to say because Christ was raised from the dead. Now, I'm looking at my watch and I'm looking at my notes and I'm thinking to myself, I'm glad it's not Super Bowl Sunday. All right, I'm just going to quickly go through this other stuff because I want to hit up on it um, and, and really go through it. So let's just step into verses 5 through 9. And he appeared to, that is Jesus, appeared to Cephas, to the, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then also to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Let me go quick through this quickly. Cephas is, a, is the other name for Peter. So when he says Cephas here, he's talking about the Apostle Peter. And they all knew, if they didn't know him personally, they all knew about Cephas. And, and remember who Peter was. Peter's the guy, the impetuous Peter, who says to Jesus in the raging storm, if that's really you walking on the water, let me jump out of the boat and walk to you. And Jesus says, come. He walks, he, he, he loses sight of Jesus, sees the winds and the waves, and he sinks. And he says, save me, Lord. And Jesus reaches out, grabs him, pulls him up. He's the same guy that made this declaration that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Anointed One. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. The same Peter. It's the same Peter that when Jesus was being arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, pulled out his sword and lopped off the servant's ear to the high priest and Jesus healed him. It's the same Peter that went down to the high priest's courtyard and denied knowing Jesus three times in one evening and mourned over it. It's the same Peter that was living in the guilt of his um, denying Jesus, was fishing down at the lake, and Jesus calls him up and says, Do you love me, Peter? You know I love you, Lord. And Jesus restores him. It's the same Peter on the, on the day of Pentecost, after the expression of tongues, got up and preached the greatest sermon uh, ever, besides the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. And 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ and were baptized that day. It's that Peter that he says Jesus went to him. 
Then he went to the, the 12. Now, when, Peter, when he says that, you've got to remember that Judas has already taken his own life and someone replaced him who, who walked with Jesus, who saw Jesus, who knew Jesus. And so there's the 12 that Jesus appears to. Then, then he appears to, get this, 500 brethren, 500 people gathered together having a love feast and celebrating all kinds of great stuff. And Jesus appears to 500 people. He talks with them. He gives them a high five. He tells them he loves them. He tells them he's going to his, up into heaven to prepare a place for them to come to. He's telling them all these great things. 500 people actually see Jesus with their own eyeballs. They witness his life after he came out of the grave. That's the evidence. The evidence speaks for itself. And, and, and Paul says that most of those guys are still alive. So if you don't believe me, go talk to them. But you can believe me as well because Jesus, I saw him face to face on the road to Damascus as I was going to go persecute his church. And I had this transforming moment, a conversion where I changed directions and I'm now batting for the other team. Instead of batting for the persecuting people, I am now growing the church of Christ. That's the evidence. And it's all historical and spiritual. And then he goes in verses 10 and 11 and, and he says, it's, it's, but the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now here's what I want to get at real quick here, real fast. Is is it by the grace of God that, that the Apostle Paul became the person that he became the Apostle who went to and started hundreds of churches, who saw thousands of people come to Christ, who, who gave himself for the gospel of Jesus. He says the only way that happened is by God's grace that I am who I am. By God's grace, you are who you are because of God's grace. The, the next thing that it, he says there is that, um, that he, he worked harder than any of the other apostles. Now that sounds arrogant and prideful. But if you understand where he came from, remember, he was one of the guys that was persecuting the church. And now he's working against the guys that were persecuting the church and he's growing the church. So what he has is what none of the other apostles had. He has a bigger bullseye on him. And there are a lot of guys that are out to try and get Paul and kill him because he's doing such a marvelous. But he has to work harder than the rest of the apostles to accomplish the same thing that they accomplish. He did not say, I accomplished more than they did. He says, I have to work harder because I'm running for my life all the time. That's what he means. And then the last thing he says, it's not, it was either, you know, it was either them or it was me. One of us preached the gospel. And, and the point, his point in that is that we all believe the same thing. We're still centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we preach. Whether you hear it from Peter, whether you hear it from James, whether you hear it from John, it doesn't matter who you hear it from. You can hear it from Barnabas, whoever you hear, Aquila and Priscilla. They are all going to preach the same message. Jesus crucified, 
buried and raised to life so that we know we now have new life in God. It, the message doesn't change. It's the same message that's been preached for 2,000 years. And that's the same message we preach in this church. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he did and how he did it. And that brings me down to this last thing. You know, it's preaching the gospel. The gospels do not explain the resurrection. The resurrection explains the gospels. Belief in the resurrection is not an appendage to faith in Christ. It is our faith in Christ. That's why Paul was so, so pressed on the resurrection that he wrote to the Roman church in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you get that? Do you hear what he said right there? Your salvation is on what you believe about God raising Jesus from the dead and then your confession of your mouth. And that confession is a twofold thing. It's a declaration that Jesus is the Lord, that He is the Son of God, and that He is exactly who He said He is. And number two, it's confessing your sin to God, and that's just an agreement with God that you cannot do life without Jesus. That's simply it. Now, here's the deal. I don't know everybody here. I do not know the condition of everybody's heart here. You may have been coming to church, and you may have been going to church for a long time, and you may go, me and God, we're all right. We're buds. High five at Jesus. But you have never come to this place where you have, you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord or that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And, and you've never confessed that to anybody. And so I just simply want to give you an offer this morning because you know what? I am going to make a big deal about this. This is the biggest deal I can make a big deal about. Because you can't have Christ at the center of your life if he's not the Lord of your life. And you can't do that unless you've made a confession with your mouth. It means you have to open it up and say something about Jesus to somebody. I want to give you an opportunity. We're going to be playing three songs as soon as I'm done here. And, and I know what the Spirit of God does because I've sat under the preaching and teaching of God's Word for a long time. And God does this little thing through His Holy Spirit. He pokes you. Sometimes it's right here and sometimes it's right here. Because all of a sudden your gut's turning and you're going like, oh. You get really uncomfortable. And so I just want to give you an opportunity. If you've never made a confession to somebody else that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your Savior and you believe God raised him from the dead, during one of those three songs, just come right up here to this front row. Because we have people that are going to come up and you can look at them and go, I'm not quite sure how to say this. And they'll coach you a little bit. And they'll go like, well, you just what, what, what's in your heart? And then you make a confession. The other side of the coin is this. Is there a lot of people that have maybe made that public confession that they are Christ followers? But their lives don't reflect any of the truth about the resurrection of God. If Jesus is raised from the dead, it changes everything. And yet there are people who have made a confession with their mouth but it has not changed anything. You're off center. Simply God's saying, get back on center. You too can come up here and you can just say, I need to do business with God. My life is not centered because 
I do believe in the resurrection, but it hasn't changed anything in my life. And I need my life to change. I need to get back on center with Christ. So that's all we're going to say about it. That's all I'm going to say about it. I'm not going to try and guilt you into anything. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But I am going to quickly just flip over now and and give you the reflective questions. If you have stepped into faith in Jesus and believed that he died, was buried and raised to life, and that changes everything, how has it changed you? In other words, have you done any reflecting on your life and going, this is the way I was before I met Jesus. This is the way I I am after I met Jesus. These are the things that God's been poking me in my heart and telling me to change in my life. And this is how I've changed those things in my life. These are the things that I've done. Because I always think it's good to reflect on where we have come from and where we are going to. Hugely important. The second one, in what ways have you expressed to others the changes or transformation that Jesus has made in your life? Where have you verbally... I think that in this room, we all, everybody in this room knows at least one person who is not a churchgoer and does not follow Jesus. You know them and you know them well. And so my challenge to you is sometime between now and Easter, you need to say to them, My life has been absolutely changed and transformed because of this is what Jesus did for me. You don't have to know a ton of scripture. You don't have to point back to anything else in the Bible. What you're doing is you are telling them your story of God at work in your life. That's all all it is. That's a confession of your mouth. Here's what God's been doing in my life. And the third question is, who is the one person that you will share that life-changing transformation with? The reason I put that question is there, because I want you to write it down somewhere. I'm pretty sure that probably 90% of you already had a name pop into your mind. Now, take it out of your mind, put it through the, your pen, and write it down. Because there will be a quiz on this. I'm just kidding. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that it wasn't just a death and a burial. That the entire event incorporates your resurrection. And what you have done for us, remind us of that every day. I'm so so thankful, Father, that you have never given up on anyone. And even when we have made a confession with our mouth and we have have walked off center from Christ in our life, you call us back. And so this morning, I simply pray for those who, who have never made the confession, believed in their heart and confessed with their mouth, that they would take the opportunity right before them today. They wouldn't put it off because today is the day of salvation. And for those who have stepped off center and they know it, and your spirit's been talking to them, that they would do business with you. Help them not to be scared or fearful to what people will think because it ultimately only matters what you think. And so bring them to the place of doing what you're calling them to do. Give them the strength, the courage. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.